1: Coming up on today's show, it is voting day in Canada, federal election 2021. We'll look back at the campaign. It wasn't one that I think will stand out in the history books. We'll find out about the electronic tracking of voters. It happens a lot by the political parties. What do they do with that information and what are you giving them? And are we at the point of triage in Alberta's ICUs? If not, we're getting close. What does it mean? So it is voting day in our country, Canadians heading to the polls in our 44th general election following a campaign that, um, well, it hasn't been completely uninteresting, but it hasn't been light your hair on fire interesting, I don't think. We sort of saw, if you track the polling going back to the beginning, the Liberals with a pretty, well, I mean, not a sizable lead, but a lead, okay? They had a lead when this thing started, which quickly evaporated. Uh, Now they've pulled her back up and it looks like it's basically a horse race. So Let's go through the campaign and sort of who failed, who capitalized, did anybody take advantage of the opportunities that were presented to them? How did they handle this campaign? We're going to talk now with Dr. Stuart Prest, who is a lecturer in political science at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Prest, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so we look back on this federal election campaign, pretty short, five weeks, um, pretty quick campaign. Um, the Liberals had their lead, and um, I think. That was a double-edged sword for Justin Trudeau. Tell me if I'm wrong. He thought he was in a position to possibly move from minority to majority, um, but that evaporated pretty quickly right out of the gate, didn't it?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. We have seen some other uh, uh, elections in the pandemic era where the incumbent government, the uh actually were able to cash in effectively by having an election even in the midst of a pandemic so i think they they thought that given the support they seem to enjoy and that uh, that track record they they thought it was a good time to to roll the dice on this this early and and quite voluntary election and uh, and that's really not how things played out, whereas uh, some other parties, such as the, the BC uh, NDP here, where I am, were able to to uh, strengthen their support, mm-hmm. if anything. The Liberals faced almost immediate questions about why they would
1: uh, have an election like this. So, so what happened? They had that lead, which almost instantly was gone. Was it a stumble out of the gate? What went wrong for them? I
2: think there was a bit of a stumble the The biggest problem earlier in the the campaign was this just this inability to tell Canadians in a succinct way what was the choice that needed to be made right now. That uh, required an election. They just couldn't justify that that choice to the satisfaction of of, of those asking the questions, including uh, a, a lot of voters, I think. And so so that was that was an initial problem. And and some of the early attempts to really draw comparisons between themselves and uh, the leading opposition, the conservatives, uh, seemed to to fall a little flat. Say on the issues like vaccine mandates mm-hmm. and, and so on, where the liberals were trying to draw this contrast, the the conservatives were pretty determined in uh, limiting the daylight and there were some questions about just how, uh, how uh,
1: vacuum-sealed the, the, the Liberal plan actually was. So we've seen, you know, that in the polling they dropped right off at the beginning, but they've come back, and um, at least even the race at this point. Um, so was that work that they did, or did the other parties not capitalize on their flagging momentum at the beginning and sort of make hay out of that?
2: Well, for the liberals, for their part, seemed like they moved to uh, a pretty determined use of of wedge issues, the uh, different yeah. topics where they can draw those contrasts, like like abortion, like like gun control laws, and so on. But the other parties, they were all t- taking some pretty uh, big swings of their own. So the NDP was, was constantly attacking uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, personally and and the Liberals, rather than trying to attack the Conservatives, who they may be uh, more at odds with ideologically. And uh, so that that. Uh, uh, I don't know if that resonated with the voters and they also uh, kept their, their platform quite uh, uh, vague on detail, yes. so it would be hard to get a good answer out of them. And then of course uh, Mr. O'Toole took the biggest swing of all when he was looking to uh, effectively move his party to the, from the, the right of the spectrum to much closer to the centre, in the middle of a campaign uh, essentially trying to reinvent the, the party's position on the fly and uh, I think he started to experience some headwinds uh, on that score, both whether voters could accept that kind of change with would buy into it. And, and some of his own uh, rank and file, I think some of the, the uh, core supporters of the party were asking questions about it as well.
1: Yeah, I think that was a calculated risk. I think he knew if you're going to move it closer to the center, you might lose somebody on the farther right side of the spectrum. And we've seen that happen. The PPC actually have seen a, a fairly sizable bump in momentum over the course of this campaign.
2: Yeah, it was very much under the radar. the The leader of the PPC, Édouard Bernier, wasn't even part of the the leader's debates. But uh, particularly in the last week or two, I think where uh, voters were trying to to make up their minds, and uh, and uh, particularly among conservatives uh, or typical conservative voters who were perhaps uh, frustrated with uh, with the the whole. Uh, Set of restrictions around vaccine mandates, the the PPC offered a clear position that it just should be people's choice, which is not where most Canadians are, but there is a substantial minority who, who hold that view. And, uh uh just m- making it clear that there was this other alternative available and and for those who were uh perhaps as skeptical of some of those other moderating moves by the conservatives as well it uh ha- seems like it may be splitting the conservative vote in in some parts of the country at least
1: yeah, I think you're right. I think you know there's that risk of you know the people who felt like they didn't really belong to the conservative Party of Canada anymore would would you know gravitate to the p p c and then there's another issue. Um, I think that he's facing, uh, and we've, we talked about this last week, of course, what happened here in Alberta with the pandemic and the way it spun out of control. Uh, um, and that's another issue that obviously Aaron O'Toole did not want dropped in his lap in the final three days of the campaign
2: no i mean that was really uh, just about a worst case scenario for for mr o'toole here he had managed to successfully stick handle the the covid issue almost to a, a draw with the liberals and then his own friend and and, and ally uh, uh mr kenney in, in alberta was uh, forced to uh enter into a full retreat on on their uh, approach to the pandemic, which which uh, Mr. O'Toole had previously endorsed, and and it seems like uh, Aaron O'Toole was just unable to or unprepared to to answer the questions that would inevitably flow from that. And so, at, at the moment when uh, they really needed to focus on issues other than the pandemic, the, the Conservatives were left answering questions about what a, a conservative approach would look like in in the midst of this uh, long drawn out crisis. And it didn't seem like they were able to to generate answers uh, in in this late hour. And so, so I think it was uh, just awful timing for, for Mr. Yeah. Uh,
1: O'Toole here on that issue. Yeah, no question about it. Um, what's your read on the sizable number of Canadians who cast their votes before the polls even opened, either through advanced polling or through mail-in ballots? Pretty good number. Um, does that speak of engaged voters and a higher voter turnout, or is that just a result of the pandemic and that doesn't necessarily translate into a busy day at the polls today?
2: Yeah, it, uh, research suggests that we can't uh, necessarily say it's going to lead to more votes overall. It certainly is indicative of, of a, uh, a population that's paying attention, but I think it is uh, particularly a signal that not all Canadians were as comfortable as usual going out to to the polling yeah. station on the day of the election. So I think we still have to wait and see what the, the actual turnout numbers are like in this very, uh,
1: in some ways, unusual and in some ways, very frustrating election. Yeah, it is going to be a very unusual election. Dr. Press, thank you so much for your time today. I really Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is Doctor Stuart Prest, who is a lecturer in political science at Simon Fraser University. <music> Going to have an interesting discussion about something that I was kind of news to me, to be completely honest. In reading about this, um, when we talk about federal election campaigns and how they've changed, we know that. Um, a tremendous amount of our own personal data is tracked, right, by various different people, companies, advertisers, blah, 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 the list goes on. Well, political parties are also heavily involved in that, very involved in that. And they collect all kinds of information and use it in many different ways. So we're going to have a discussion about the electronic tracking of voters in our country. Elizabeth Dubois joins us now, an associate professor of communication at the University of Ottawa. Elizabeth, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I wasn't aware of this. Do you think most Canadians are? Do you think most Canadians have an understanding that um, the way they interact with politicians and parties leads to them being tracked in some way?
0: You know, only about 60% of Canadians know that parties get access to things like mailing address or their name or phone number. Uh, But then there's all kinds of other information that gets collected that fewer and fewer people know about. So... You know, some political parties will collect information about your social media handles, about your occupation, about your age or gender, and few people know about that.
1: Yeah. So let's go through what kind of things are being collected. I mean, it goes right down to your income, right? I mean, they collect all kinds of info.
0: Yeah. So I mean it's important to know that not all of this information is collected, you know, down to the penny on every single person. But there is a lot of different information that parties can collect. And the big problem is we just don't know what most parties are collecting. Yeah. So we do know, you know, it's very common for parties to identify your address because they get that access because you're a voter in their sure. riding. Um, a lot of them will ask you for their phone number, even though that's not provided by Elections Canada, uh, and they will—that's your cell phone number, I should say. They'll have you know a landline if you've got it, and can connect that to their address. And then they might, if you are thought of as a likely voter, they might want to target advertisements to you online and so they'll try and figure out uh you know do you have an email address you want to share do you have a facebook do you want to go like our facebook page and that kind of thing and all of that is used to gather more and more bits of information and create this profile of who you are
1: so obviously they get the voters list which is pretty generic and they've always had access to that but like you say it's the online once you step into that realm clicking on a liberal or a conservative ad opens you up to further tracking that's true
0: Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways it happens. One of the ways is they might ask you if that you'd like to give them information, right? So they'll ask you, do you want to be added to a mailing list or uh, can I have your email address to keep you up to date? So those are the kinds of things where we opt into getting that electronic communication. But then there's, you know, clicking on ads. So depending on where you click on it and how that process goes, they get different kinds of information. If you're clicking on a Facebook ad, they don't actually get your specific name and your profile, but they get a sense of who you are generally. And if you do choose to go and donate or get a lawn sign or something like that based on that click, then they connect it back to that wider profile of
1: who you are. What what do they do with that information? Like, I mean, like you said, is it just targeted advertising, or is there more? Are they building a database of this is our, these are the people that are in our camp, and you know, what do they do with the info?
0: Yeah, so when they have that general information, what we call aggregated information, where they don't necessarily uh, have the intent of kind of targeting you specifically, but people like you, that's where we see targeted advertisements on Facebook or other platforms happening. But then there's also the uh, kind of get-out-the-vote campaigns. A bunch of people are probably getting phone calls from campaigns today saying, hey, I noticed you haven't voted yet. Do you want to ride to the polls? Is there something standing in your way? Can we help you get there? And parties do that when they've identified you as somebody who's probably going to vote for them, and they want to make sure you get to the polls. So some of this information, that's really great. We want more people getting to the polls. But other times it can lead to, you know, constant requests for, hey, would you like to volunteer for us? Hey, would you like to donate to to us, hey, would you like uh, to put a lawn sign up? And sometimes people like that kind of contact, and other times people are, you know, a bit annoyed by it.
1: Yeah, and that's actually the work that you're doing, is finding out how Canadians feel about this tracking, Um, and really kind of interesting because, um, you know, it, it really affects how people engage with political parties in terms of what information they find out these parties are collecting on them, right?
0: Exactly. So already people have, like, relatively low engagement rates they you know we see only about a third of the population saying that they are likely to engage with campaigns if they were to get a phone call or or to kind of get a message or interaction on social media Uh, but what's really interesting in our research is once we give people more information about how much parties collect and what they do with it fewer people are then saying, oh, I'd be happy to engage on social media. So once people learn that parties collect stuff on social, they're less likely to want to engage there.
1: So a little more guarded once they realize, wait a minute, just watching that ad or clicking on their site or whatever leads to suddenly they have more access to my own personal data.
0: Exactly. And it just kind of makes you it makes people more aware of the potential risk of having their data in some database.
1: Like, what are they worried about? Are they worried about being bombarded with liberal or conservative campaign ads, or maybe this information is going to end up in the wrong hands? What was the primary concern they cited?
0: The biggest concerns are really around the safety and security of the data. So it's less about is a campaign going to send me more information and more about what if hackers got into it? What if there was a data breach? Uh, What if there were um, parties that were selling my data to other sources or sharing my data with others uh, and then other people have access to it beyond the party. So it's interesting to see that people aren't too concerned with the parties themselves using the data, but all of the potential knock-on effects if that data is not kept secure and protected.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Do they think this is a fair way to play out a democracy? Is this something that they want to see continue, or do they think this is sort of something that shouldn't be part of our system?
0: So we asked people whether or not they thought parties having personal information like this was essential to our democracy and the majority of people said they didn't think that that was the case uh now it was only a slight majority so there's definitely wiggle room i think what this means is we need to be clearer about what information is actually necessary right it's great that parties know who is in their riding and who they are representing
1: uh but it's not so great if it's making people uncomfortable yeah, and what about consent? What about putting in a little consent that, hey, we're going to be collecting this information? I mean, that would change things, wouldn't it?
0: Exactly, and we expect that from yeah. businesses already, right? We've got privacy laws that make it very difficult for businesses to misuse our data or to collect data without our knowledge. And the thing is, other than in D.C., in Canada, parties are exempt. And so political parties... Yeah, they have to have a privacy statement, but there's no regulator making sure that uh, they're following what they said in that statement. And there's no legal restrictions here at this point on those political parties. And so uh, having something like mandatory consent is just not on the table at the moment.
1: In fact, parties have come out and said, hey, forget it. We're not covered by this privacy legislation. We don't have to adhere by these rules, right? They've explicitly stated such.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We've seen, uh, you know, the Liberals and the NDP have both come out and been clear that this is not something that we are held to. uh, And other parties similarly have not been posting uh, that kind of information or going through the kinds of they don't hold themselves to the rigor that businesses are held to because they don't have to.
1: Interesting stuff, Elizabeth. I, I, I admit it was an eye-opener to me. Thank you for doing the work, and thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Elizabeth Dubois, who is Associate Professor of Communications at the University of Ottawa. How much did you know about that? I mean, I, I, you know, the voter rolls, they know who's in the riding, and they know who's voted which way in the past, and, and to target things like that. And, of course, if you ask for a yard sign... Uh, yeah, that's going to be noted. Um, but, you know, the social media clicks, and if you reply to an email, were you aware of that? Last Wednesday, so call it five, six days ago, Premier Jason Kenney uh, gave us the update on the situation in Alberta's healthcare system. And at that time, he told us at the current rate, the ICU system in the province of Alberta could be completely overrun within 10 days. So we're more than halfway there. Uh, We'll have to wait and see what the numbers are later today. Of course, um, they're not reported over the weekend. So we don't know if hospital numbers went up or went down over the weekend. But based on the trend that we saw, they have steadily gone up. uh, And there wasn't a lot of room left. So when we get to that point, if we do, and God forbid that we do, nobody wants us to get there. But what does that mean? If we get to the situation where the healthcare system gets to that breaking point and we just can't provide critical care to everybody who needs it, um, how does that work? According to a government document, it will be reserved for patients with the greatest chance of survival. So doctors are put in just a horrid position. So to find out how close we are... Um, what kind of discussions have taken place and and how that would look. We're joined now by Dr. Noel Gibney, who is a professor emeritus in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Alberta. Dr. Gibney, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Shay. Thank you for having me. So this is a discussion that we had um, a while ago, uh, back in previous waves. We never got there. It seems to me like we're closer this time around than we ever have been before, we know we have more patients in ICU in this province than we ever have in the history of this province. How close do you think we are to actually um, having to take this last drastic step?
3: Well, we'll certainly have a better idea later today, Um, but again looking at at where we were last Friday, the estimation was that we were anywhere from seven to ten days from not having any more room in any of the ICUs in the province, uh, which would take us to, I guess, probably somewhere around
1: the end of September. Um, which is pretty close at this Mm. point in time. Yeah, very close. So, I mean, I know this isn't something that you guys will be winging inside of the hospitals. There is protocol in place. There is a document to refer to. Um, Just walk us through that document. Has it been around for a long time, or is this something that was drawn up specifically because of the pandemic? It was drawn up significantly, or specifically because of the pandemic. Uh,
3: An earlier draft of this was developed uh, for H1N1, but thankfully never had to be used. And and so that some of that original draft was dusted off, uh, probably just before the pandemic hit, recognizing that at some time this could happen. And then since, I guess, March 2020, as I understand that the document has been progressively revised, and was finally published uh, and made public in uh, during the, the third wave right. I, I guess in april May of this year um, and and it's it, it's a very comprehensive document um, and and to some extent, I suspect it'll be difficult to put into place what it does though is it makes sure that if we find ourselves in that really unenviable and horrible place of having to decide who gets taken off their ICU ventilator and uh, who then gets the bed that's created when the patient is taken off the ventilator and put on palliative care. And the, as you said, the, the purpose is to make sure that the maximum number of patients who have the best chance of survival are offered the, 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 the chance of being supported with critical care um, rather than leaving it to the discretion of every single doctor. And, and in large measure, the, the the doctors at the bedside won't be the only ones making those decisions. There'll be a triage team that they will refer to to have a sense of, okay, where are we in the province? And, and because it, it's going to be exceedingly difficult because I can imagine a situation where there's somebody, so we've run out of beds. Yeah. And there's somebody uh, in one of the hospitals, say, in Calgary or Edmonton, who isn't doing well. And they then meet the criteria for having their critical care withdrawn and put on palliative therapy. So that would be confirmed. The family would be notified that the family, if that decision is made to take somebody off a ventilator, the family then would not have right of appeal the patient would then be taken off the ventilator, put on palliative care, would probably pass away quickly. Then the, the the emergency departments and the medical units around the province would be surveyed to see who's waiting for an ICU bed. And then all of those individuals would be would have been assessed using different um, statistical tools just to see which of them, based on previous medical illness, current state, et cetera, Um,
1: what their probability of surviving one year would be. And, you know, Doc, uh, this is, like you say, it wouldn't be a doctor at the bedside necessarily making these decisions because it's pretty clearly broken down in this document so that doctors aren't in the position where they have to make this decision on the fly. There's some pretty clear benchmarks, like you say, who has the best probability of surviving one year. So there's different factors that go into it, but they are sort of laid out in the document. Correct.
3: And and again, it, it, it's based on numbers of studies, so it, it has a scientific base. It's something that would be fairly easy, obviously morally difficult to implement in somebody that's in an ICU because you have lots of time. The challenge is going to be when somebody is deteriorating quickly, either on one of the medical units or in an emergency department. And the decision needs to be taken within A minute or two as to whether or not that patient should be actively resuscitated have a breathing tube put in have their blood pressure supported and so those decisions are probably going to have to be taken without necessarily having the benefit of further discussions and and so i I i think it is going to be much more complicated in in clinical
1: practice than
3: as it's laid out in
1: the document you know, and and despite the fact that it is laid out in the document, it is still chilling to read some of these things, Doctor. Like in Phase 1, patients with an 80% probability of dying within a year will be denied critical care. Phase 2, those with a 50% probability of death within a year right. would be denied critical care. I mean, those are it, it's jarring for me as a layman to read those sorts of things, but as a doctor, I can't imagine knowing that you could provide an extra year of life to somebody if you had the facilities to do it. I mean, that's just, it's a horrible, horrible situation. I mean, absolutely, Shay. And, uh, I mean, I I can't
3: imagine having to do that, um, but recognizing that if you don't do it, uh, potentially that there there just just isn't a bed for them. And and so one of the other things I think that's really important in all of this is, is that the province really has to develop Plans to transfer as many patients as possible, as soon as possible, out of province, probably to Ontario, which has agreed to take uh, Alberta patients. They have a much larger ICU bed base, even on a population basis, than Alberta. And, and the more patients that we can, at this point in time, safely, because again, it will, it will be challenging, but, but can be done and has been done in Europe during some of their waves. And we we open up capacity in our ICUs in Alberta, making it less likely that we have to to implement uh, triage, and uh, and even if we do have to implement triage, that we will have to do it much less often.
1: Yeah, and the situation is none of us wanted to get there, for sure. Uh, there, there's there's no doubt about it. So we're in a position where airlifting out is probably the best option. You know, we, we've heard some doctors saying you need to bring the military in now, we need to get those field hospitals set up. I mean, I imagine for somebody in your position, uh, you know, a, a critical care physician, you'll there, let's do anything and everything we can before we get into a triage situation, right? Let's exhaust every possibility. And, uh, absolutely. No, the, 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 the
3: challenge is that, unfortunately, the, the military won't be able to help us in ICUs with um, field hospitals because the, the military, the, the, there, there may be a, a few military nurses um, and, and doctors who are critically uh, critical care trained. But where, where the military can help us is the military have facilities to do significant airlifts of patients, and they airlifted the number of patients from Manitoba to Ontario in the third wave. Uh, I, I suspect that the numbers that we might need to airlift would, would be such that we may also need for Alberta to negotiate with their, our private medevac companies that medevac usually foreigners from Canada and repatriate them back to their home countries. And they use uh, critical care nurses and doctors uh, to do this. And basically what you have to have is is a mobile intensive care unit, all of the equipment that you have in an ICU uh, in the back of an airplane. And uh, during the first wave in uh, France and Italy, what they actually had was they had critical care trains. They, They basically turned the inside of trains into ICUs and they transported them from France and Italy to Germany. They really have a huge number of ICU beds. And they also did the same with with planes. Military planes were uh, used to uh, transport patients from France and Italy to to Germany. And and so the sooner we actually have those discussions with the military and with uh, uh, private medevac companies, the sooner we can start moving people from the ICUs in Alberta to Ontario
1: mm-hmm. so that we, we, we don't have to implement the triage uh, yeah. protocol. Yeah, and the clock is ticking and uh, and time is short. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today, I really appreciate your time. You're welcome, Shay. thank you. That is Dr. Noel Gibney, who is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Alberta, and um, it'll be interesting to see what those numbers tell us today. Um, basically, we're going to get three, four days worth of numbers reported later this afternoon and uh typically well i mean you've seen you you've seen where we are you've seen the numbers you know how we are um and the icus continue to tick up and uh we know that last week it was a crisis to the point we had to move some things and change some things and uh put out appeals to other provinces to take icu patients and um it's a bleak situation right now in our healthcare system um and i mean do do you reasonably expect to see things reversing based on what happened last week already i think they will help for sure we're seeing vaccination rates go up um you know and the restrictions will certainly help there's no doubt but that takes time to trickle through to the system right and people who arrive in the icu today were probably a new case a week or two ago we know how it works they're all lagging indicators you've heard all the terms throughout the course of this pandemic so um even if we've reached the peak in new cases today i'm not saying we have we'll we'll see what the numbers. Uh, tell us later today. But even if we've reached the peak in new cases, as of later today, that does not mean we've reached the peak in people ending up in hospital because they're coming through from a week or two away. So fingers crossed, you know, do what you can do what you can stay safe. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.